The end of Karen's and my ministry here at DPC is drawing near. And over the next five Sundays, I'll have five more opportunities to open the Bible with you, to seek to hear God's voice amidst all the alternative voices that our city throws at us through the week. So where will I go? What part of the scriptures will we open up? That was the first question I had to ask. And a few months ago, in my personal Bible reading and prayer time, God laid it on my heart to open up some Psalms in the 90s. Now, Karen's and my love for the Psalms is no secret by now. The reason we love them so much is that they are both songs and prayers. As songs, they engage the heart as much as the head. They grab hold not only of our reason, but of our affections. And as prayers, they're intimate communication with God, expressing the human condition in all its ups and downs. We've been particularly helped in a fresh approach to the Psalms by the English theologian Christopher Ash in his two volumes on teaching Psalms. Ash is especially helpful in seeing Jesus in the Psalms and also in helping us grab hold of the affective dimension, the heart. Uh, the picture Ash paints of us engaging well in the Psalms is of joining the choir led by the Lord Jesus in singing them. And this means not only understanding the lyrics, but getting a sense of the music, uh, the mood of the psalm, the, the emotions that are engaged. It, it means, first of all, then, uh, thinking of what the psalm would have meant to its original author or those of ancient Israel who would have sung or prayed the psalm. And then how Jesus, as a faithful Jew, as well as God's own son, would have engaged with it. And so how he leads his people in singing this song and what it means for us to join the choir. Now, I think the the 90s is a very helpful section of the Psalms for us. If you look at your paper Bibles, something you might miss from your devices, you'll see just above Psalm 90 that these Psalms begin the fourth book of the Psalms. Yes, the 150 Psalms are divided into five books. They're not just a random selection. They may have been written at various times and places by different people, but they have been edited with thought and prayer. Uh, The first two books of Psalms have a real focus on David, who wrote most of the Psalms in those two books. Uh, Book three, though, as Christopher Ash puts it, smells of exile. Its dominant author, Asaph, was clearly part of the exiled Israel, expressing all the fears and challenges of living in exile and the hope of a new king in David's line. Book four, then, continues that exilic focus. But recognising that there was no king on David's throne through the exile, it looks further back than David into Israel's history at the everlasting sovereignty of the Lord. So as we live as exiles and strangers, as the New Testament book of 1 Peter addresses Christians, and, and as we navigate a world that largely ignores or rejects God and faces challenges like COVID, well, these Psalms can really help us to see who God is, and turn our hearts back to him. And for a start, Psalm 90, as it focuses on God as our home, our dwelling place, will call us to look at our eternal Lord, lament our ephemeral life, learn the fear of the Lord, and so look for the favour of the Lord. So let's dive in. But first, let's pray. 
Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we want to come to you now recognising that we cannot truly hear your word. We cannot truly sing these psalms, pray these psalms, unless you uh, speak to us through them. Lord, this is not only a prayer of Moses, but it's your word to us. So we ask, Lord God, for you to speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now see how Psalm 90 begins. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Words of reassurance, of hope, of resilience. God is our dwelling place, our true home, our eternal home. Uh, He was there at the beginning before the mountains. He is the one who brought forth the world, our maker. From everlasting, there was never a time he wasn't. To everlasting, there will never be a time he ceases to be. God is the eternal one, the beginning and the end. So he is our dwelling place, our home, with all the security and comfort that that word evokes. Now, the superscription, that little heading above verse 1, tells us this is a a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This actually makes it most probably the oldest psalm in the the Psalms. It, It certainly echoes the thinking of Moses as reflected in the Moses books, the first five books of the Bible, especially Deuteronomy. So this psalm began its life as a prayer in which Moses led the people of God as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, having escaped slavery in Egypt, but not yet in the land that God had promised, still waiting, longing for their new home. Do you get a sense of what these words would have meant for them? The music is strong, full of hope, joy even. And so it would have been for the exiles as they began their way through book four of the Psalms. Book three had ended with Psalm 89, which though it began singing of God's love and held out the firm promise of a a new king in David's line, it climaxed in lament, in a cry of how long will God hide himself? A cry that would well echo in the hearts of people who had been exiled from their home in the promised land. So as they turned to Psalm 90 to an acknowledgement that God and not Babylon was their eternal home, their very hearts would sing. And as Jesus left his eternal home with the Father to take upon himself the frailty of our life on this earth, as he lived a transient life, remember what he said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Well, Jesus entered our homelessness in order to take us home. So on the night before he died, as he shared with his disciples, he reassured them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So as Jesus leads us in singing Psalm 90, Uh, His words of hope and promise add a a new level of assurance to verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And why this is so important is spelled out as the psalm continues. See, from verse 3, you turn people back to dust saying, 
Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. So from looking to our eternal God as our home, the psalm turns to lament the ephemeral nature of our present home. From God's eternity to our brevity. From the joyous confidence tune of hope to a sombre funeral dirge. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as I have said at too many funerals. The contrast is drawn here between God, to whom a thousand years are like a day, or or even less, like a watch in the night, and our earthly existence, which is fleeting. The first part of verse 5 is better translated in the NRSV, you sweep them away, they are like a dream. Life is fading like a morning snooze, or like grass, as the verse goes on, grass that springs up in the morning dew, but withers and dries in the heat of the day. It's fleeting, transient, ephemeral. There's no doubt that Moses' generation would have felt that transience as they trudged through the wilderness, living off manna and a bit of quail as a whole generation died one after the other. If you thought lockdown was bad, imagine that, for 40 years. And as for the exiles, they too would know how fleeting life was. And don't we? I mean, if there's anything good to come out of COVID, it's the reality check like these verses, a new awareness of our mortality, a recognition that life is short and fragile. How good it is that we know the Son of God who took on himself that transient life, who was embodied in mortal flesh, who breathed the last breath on the cross. Because as we continue in the psalm, the the tune turns even more mournful and takes on an ominous note of dread with a recognition that life's brevity is because of our sin and that we need to learn the fear of the Lord. Look at that with me verse from verse 7. We're consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Now, the previous stanza had acknowledged that it was the Lord who turns us back to dust and sweeps people away. But verse 7 gives us the reason. We are consumed by your anger. We die because God is angry with the people he has made. We never like facing that up to that. We're rightly terrified of God's indignation, but there it is, and we deserve it because God knows our hearts. He knows our iniquities, that is, our waywardness. As the hymn, Come Thou Fount, puts it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's our heart, a heart that way too readily turns away from the living God. And though we may hide our secret sins in some dark recess, 
It can never be hidden from God's brilliant presence. He knows us completely. And so all our days pass away under God's wrath and we finish our years with a moan. Oh, we get to 70 years or 80 if we're lucky. Nowadays, we might even pass 100. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. No life in this broken world is all sunshine and roses. The devastating truth is that the only way to avoid suffering in this life is to die very young. And it's all because we human beings have turned away from God. Ever since that first rebellion of our human ancestors seeking to be their own God, making up their own rules, well, we've all fallen into that pattern, wanting life on our own terms. Maybe unthinkingly, maybe subtly, but whatever way, pushing the true God off his rightful throne to run life our own way, waywardness, rebellion, iniquity, sin. We need to learn the fear of the Lord to recognise his righteous judgment of us. See how verse 11 continues? If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Here is the heart of the psalm, a lesson that we all need to learn, to number our days, to recognise the shortness of our life and to know that all the brokenness that we experience in this life is the judgement of God on human sin. Not in a direct, you suffer this particular pain because of this particular sin kind of way, but because our hearts are wayward because we fall short of the glory of God, failing to consistently love him with all our heart, mind, soul and strength, or even to love our neighbour as ourselves. So we need to number our days, to know the power of God's anger, his wrath that is as great as the fear that is his due, the fear of the Lord. That's the key, standing in awe of the eternal God, recognising that he is God and we are not. And so we gain a heart of wisdom. Just as Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the essence, the heart of true wisdom. It's clear that Moses wanted his generation to learn this. The generation that had clearly rejected God's command and promise when they refused to enter the promised land. That's why they were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness because of God's wrath on their rebellion. And the exiles needed to learn the the same lesson. God had warned them over and over again, every prophet he sent, return to me or I'll kick you out of the land. And they didn't return. They kept on sinning. And God sent them into exile in Babylon so that they might learn to number their days, so that they might learn the fear of the Lord. When Jesus sang this psalm, He would have wept for the brokenness of this world, not for his own heart, which contained no sin, but for the world under God's wrath. Indeed, he did weep at the tomb of Lazarus, at the gates of Jerusalem. He wept for a world lost to sin. And he did more than weep. He took it upon himself. On the cross, Jesus was consumed by God's anger. God's anger, not at his perfect son, 
but at his rebellious people, at you and me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried as he took upon himself the full force of God's wrath on us as he died the death that we deserve to die. Which is why we can sing the final stanza of this song with exuberant hope as it calls upon us to long for the favour of the Lord. Moses' generation would have sung it as a desperate plea. So would the exiles. But as the crucified and risen Jesus leads us in singing it, it shouts with resilient hope. Have a look from verse 13. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In verse 13, the psalm addresses God for the first and only time by the personal name that he had given Moses at the burning bush. The Lord, all in capital letters, Yahweh. It claims the the relationship that God had given to his people. He was their God. They were his people. Relent, they cried. How long? Have compassion. It was on the cross that Jesus was answering that plea. It was on the morning of his resurrection that God satisfied us with his unfailing love so that we can sing for joy and be glad all our days. The people of God before Jesus asked God to make them glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. And we know that in Christ, God gives us so much more than that, much more than joys to balance the sorrows as the prayer suggests. But as 2 Corinthians 4.17 puts it, an eternal glory that far outweighs all the troubles that we encounter in this broken world our true home in the new heavens and the new earth, in the glorious presence of God for all eternity. So we can sing this final stanza with gusto, with a depth of hope and joy that is given by God in Christ. But there's still also a plea in our song. We still weep with Jesus at our sinful hearts and our broken world. There's still a longing for the favour of the Lord. There's still a cry of, come, Lord Jesus, because we're not there yet. Jesus has dealt with the penalty of sin. He has sent his spirit to, to overcome the power of sin. But we still live with the presence of sin. We still live in a world of trouble and sorrow. We still need to number our days on this earth that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so we join with Jesus as he prays with us and for us with a confident hope. May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We know that God will answer such a prayer. We know because in Jesus, God has dealt with our sin and conquered the death that haunts us. 
As Paul says to the Corinthians, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. His favour will rest upon us when we trust in him. He will establish the work of our hands as we work for him. And he will, by grace, welcome us into our eternal home. You know, before Karen and I came to Des Moines, we spent some long service leave over in the UK and France. And as that time was coming to a close, we really felt the transience of our life. You see, some months before the end of our time in Wagga, uh, we had moved out of the manse there, which had been our home for 24 years in which all our kids had grown up, and we'd moved into a rental. And as we returned to Australia, we would head to Wagga and pack up from that rental and move into the unit that DPC was renting for us in Denning Street until we could move into the manse which was being renovated. And here we were in England thinking of heading home. Home? Where's home? And that's when Karen happened to come to Psalm 90 in her Bible reading. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, she read. Neither the Wagamance nor the Des Moines one, not one rental nor the other. And as we now move from our Tranmere Street unit to the house that we have bought in Wanuna at the end of November, it still won't be our final home, our true home. No, it is the Lord who is our dwelling place. That's what it means to number our days, to recognise that this world is transient, that sin has broken it, that God's judgement is real, that death is an ever-present reality. But because of Jesus, we have hope, true hope, resilient hope, that we have our true home in God. So, so much about life in Des Moines can deceive us. Whether it's one of those mansions on the bay or a humble one-bedroom unit without even a glimpse of the water, most of us live in a fair degree of comfort. We, we can invest in this life as if it were all there was, pouring all our energy into that house that is our present home or taking the next step up the ladder in our career or seeing how well we can do in our study We can think security is all about our investments and insurance. We can plan our lives around the next holiday or or that long retirement holiday at the end of our working lives. And none of those things are wrong in themselves. It's great to live in a nice place and achieve good goals and enjoy our rest. It's wise to work hard and invest our resources well, but it's not permanent. Whether it's an economic collapse an environmental crisis or a global pandemic. You know, it only takes a a freak storm or a devastating fire to destroy that beautiful house. Uh, We've seen how fragile even good jobs can be when the economy turns sour. And it only takes a phone call from the specialist to wipe all those future plans away. But as Jesus leads us in singing Psalm 90, We rejoice in a new perspective on this life. This isn't home. It's temporary. 
God is our true home and Jesus has prepared the way for us, put out the welcome mat that we don't deserve into his father's house with its many rooms, our eternal home. As Jesus leads us in singing Psalm 90, he teaches us to number our days and gain a wise heart so that we'll sit loosely with this life and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We will work for our true home, being confident that God's favour will rest upon us, that he will establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, he will establish the work of our hands. So as we focus on our God as our true home, let me pray for us as Paul did for the Thessalonians. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would make us worthy of your calling and that by your power you may bring to fruition our every desire for goodness and our every deed prompted by faith. I pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and us in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.